0: As I pointed out last week, uh, verse uh, 15 is really the beginning of a new paragraph. And uh, and I was including it with verse 14 just because I was trying to make progress through the passage. But we didn't get that far anyway. So verse 15 really picks up a new paragraph. And, and it's really introduced by the last part of verse 14 where he talks about Adam being a type of Christ. But... Uh, But as we usually do, let's go back and just try to recall what did we talk about last week, beginning in verse 12? Okay, the Protestant? Yeah, the Protestant and the apothecist, okay? And what was the Protestant? Well, I you can give me the definition of the Protestant, or you can tell me what the Protestant was in this passage. Okay, it's the subjunctive clause, the if clause, okay? And he begins verse twelve with an if clause. I'll tell you what, let's do. Let's just read the passage. Let's read beginning twelve, and that'll kind of jog your memories a little bit. Let's begin reading in verse twelve. And we'll read down through verse 17, which is certainly as far as we'll ever hope to get today. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. Jesus Christ. Okay. Now go back again to verses twelve through fourteen or so. Uh, We've already mentioned the fact that he introduces it with this kind of subjunctive, subjunctive clause or this kind of if uh, statement that he makes uh, right there at the beginning. What else do you remember that we talked about last week? We talked about where it says, "All men, because all have sinned." Okay. And how it's very clear that we don't die. For another man's son, a father, or anyone else's sin. We die because we personally sinned. Okay, okay. And sometimes it can get very crowded. Well, I'm dying because Adam is sinned, so I'm dying because i sinned. Okay, okay. So we do understand that there is a clear connection that we have with the sin of Adam. Okay, scripture is very clear on that. We have this very, and, and, and you don't get any clearer here than Romans chapter 5, that we have this very clear connection. And one way you can think of it is is Romans 5 is kind of talking about two races of people. We talked about this a little bit last week. Two races or two groups, groups of people, and they actually overlap, okay? But he's talking about two groups of people, and we have two heads, one head at each of each of these races of people or groups of people, and these two heads are whom? Adam and Christ. Okay, so we have Adam at the head of the entire human race and we have Christ as the head of all those then who receive the gift of grace and life through Christ that he talks about here in these verses that we're looking at. So, So there is very clearly, because we are all descendants of Adam, we carry in our nature... Uh, the sin of Adam in the sense that Adam sinned and when he sinned he fell he carried then in his person the sin nature and that sin nature has been passed on to every single descendant of Adam uh, throughout history so we all carry that sin nature that we inherited from Adam Okay, that is at a, that, that is at a minimum what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 5 and as I pointed out uh, many believe, and I don't go quite this far uh, myself. I, I, I struggle with this a little bit myself, but many believe that we actually somehow actually sinned in Adam's sin. Okay, so that's a very orthodox, very uh, very uh, traditional Christian view of this passage, and and you would certainly be well within the realm of orthodoxy if that's how you view it—that you actually somehow sinned in Adam's sin, so that when Adam take of, took of the fruit. You somehow, because He is your, uh, as they say, federal head, uh, that somehow you send in Adam. Okay? But those, those are the ideas that are being communicated uh, here in Romans chapter 5. What else? Okay. Okay. Great. Good. Okay. So we kind of have two kind of classifications. We have sin and then we have transgression. OK, and 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 uh, Paul here talks about Adam's transgression. And when he's talking about Adam's transgression, he's talking about the fact that God had given a specific command to Adam, which was what? Don't eat of the fruit. OK, uh, I made the mistake last week of calling it an apple and somebody nailed me on that, okay? So, don't eat of the fruit, right? Okay, And that was a specific command, okay? But then he talks about those between Adam and Moses who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's sin. Now, he's not saying they didn't sin because he's made very clear in Romans 1 and in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, he doesn't say they haven't sinned But he said they didn't sin in the likeness of Adam's sin. What did he mean by that? Okay, they didn't sin in the sense that they had some laws that were clearly given to them by God. They had, of course, the conscience in their hearts that he talks about in Romans 1. They had that knowledge of God. But they didn't have this kind of spoken or written law that we have for example with Adam in the garden and then ultimately of course we have with Moses at Sinai okay so they didn't have that but during that period of time people stopped dying right because there was no they didn't stop okay they did die okay we have plenty of examples of that right we have the flood, you know, as an example of that. We have Cain and Abel. We have all kinds of examples of death during that period of time because death reigned during that time because those people were sinners. Not in the likeness of Adam's sin or in the likeness of the children of Israel once the law came in the wilderness, but nevertheless they had sinned. And because they sinned, then death reigned, right? Okay so what else what else do you remember from last week okay we'll go on then since you don't remember anything else oh somebody he was speaking to the Jews that one of the issues was they thought the law was internal one of the things that he was trying to be direct okay Okay, good. Yeah. So the the Jewish conception in the days of Paul was this idea of the eternality of the law, that the law had always existed, and that's why people died. But Paul is refuting that because he's making it very clear that the law came with Moses. Okay? So he refutes that idea, but he demonstrates that even without the law, men sinned, which refuted the other Jewish idea that, that you couldn't sin without the, the written law of God, okay? So he he, uh, he kind of shoots down two uh, misconceptions there that were prevalent among the Jews of his day. Okay, well, let's pick it up then at the end of verse 14. Well, let's just read verse 14. He says, "...nevertheless, death reigned from Adam till Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam." who is a type of him who is to come. And it's that last phrase that we didn't get to last week. Uh, we got most of the way through 14, but we didn't talk about that. And Paul now introduces this idea of Adam being a type of Christ. Okay. Now, before we get into that, though, let's back up. Just kind of going back into what we talked about last week. Let's back up and ask ourselves, what is the point that Paul is trying to make in Romans 5:12 through 21? What 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 is the what is the overriding issue that Paul is trying to make in these verses? And don't give me a blank look because I told you last week. What? <laughs> OK, death, uh, death is death is a theme, OK, but it's not the primary theme. It's not the primary point he's trying to make. He, he brings up the issue of death and the prevalence of death in order to make his point. Okay, his real point is the gift and the greatness of the gift that we have in Christ. Remember, the whole idea that Paul is trying to stress is the certainty of our hope. Okay, he's talked about earlier in the chapter, he's talked about how certain this hope is that we have. So it's not this hope I hope so type of hope, but it's this a hope I know so. Okay, and Paul is trying through several things here in chapter five. He's trying to demonstrate to us how absolutely certain this is that we are going to share in the glory of God, that we are going to partake of this eternal life, that we're going to, you know, all these promises that he's, you know, that that they're now ours because we are in Christ. Okay, and so he's trying to communicate to us. The certainty of our hope. And one of the things, and this is what he really is harping on now in 12 through 21, one of the things that communicates to us and assures us of the certainty of our hope is this just incredible, remarkable, overwhelming greatness of what Christ did at the cross. When we contemplate how incredibly great is Christ's death on the cross. Then, and, and its, its effect, and, and its extent, and its impact, and the destiny that is ours because of Christ's death on the cross. When we contemplate that, then we can know for sure that this promise of the glory of God is ours. Okay? So that's his point. We have to keep that in mind. Now, in order to show to us The greatness of Christ's death, he's going to contrast it with something else that we know from experience is very great. Okay? So, in other words, he's going to take something that we know from our personal experience is really pretty profound and pretty great, and he's going to show us that the death of Christ is greater than that. What is that thing that he's going to contrast the death of Christ with? Or condemnation or sin. Okay. Uh, okay. Pardon. Sin and death. Okay, sin and death, and specifically the sin and death as it comes from Adam. Okay. So what he's doing is he's going to he's going to compare Christ with Adam in order to show us the greatness of Christ, and to do that, he's going to show us how profound and how extensive and how great is that one act of transgression that Adam committed in the garden. When he shows us that and we comprehend and we can relate to that, right? Because we read the news Friday night. Right? Death spread to all men, even little kindergartners in Connecticut. Right? We understand this. We relate to this. And if we can understand that death spread to all men through the transgression of the one Adam then we can begin to get a grip on how great is the death of Christ. Because he contrasts them. Well, and he compares them. So he starts out there at the end of verse 14 and he says, now Adam is a type of Christ. What what does he mean by that? What is it? it, Pardon? A picture. picture, Okay, yeah. Okay, uh, Herb was talking about Facebook here earlier. And, uh, you know, some of us are addicted to Facebook and some of us haven't fallen to that far yet. But uh, for those of us that are addicted to Facebook, you know, one of the things we like to do is we like to post types on Facebook. Right. I do it. I post types on Facebook. You know, I post a, a type of uh, I post a type of my grandkids. You know, I post a, you know, a type of my house buried in snow. You know, I post type. what do I mean. What am I posting? Pictures, photographs, right? Okay. so we have in the Old Testament. We talked about this many times, of course, before we have in the Old Testament. We have a series of types and they are simply pictures. Now, that doesn't mean that the type wasn't real. The type was real. It was a real event or a real person. But the type serves as a shadow or prefiguring or an image to represent something greater that happens later in redemptive history, particularly in the New Testament. So, for example, one great type that we have in the Old Testament is the story of Abraham and Isaac at Moriah where he's offering Isaac or doesn't actually offer him, but where he's willing to offer him. And in that story, as we studied it when we went through Genesis, we found that early in the story that, uh, that Isaac is representative of Christ. He's a type of Christ. And later he becomes a representative or a type of us. Okay, later in the story as he is spared from being sacrificed. So, but he's an image. Now, we, and when we say that he's a type, we don't mean that the story of Abraham and Isaac didn't really happen. It did happen and was significant in and of itself. But it also prefigured something even greater. Okay? Now, Paul says here at the end of verse 14, he says that Adam is a type of Christ. So, so when we speak of a type, the type is the image and then we have the real thing. That's what we call the anti-type. Okay? So Adam is the type. Christ is the anti-type. Abraham, was, uh, Abraham and Isaac is the type. The death of Christ on the cross, the offering of Christ on the cross is the anti-type. Okay? Those are the terms that we use in theology. Okay. Paul says here that Adam is the type of Christ. Now, the funny thing about it is as soon as he says Adam is the type of Christ, And most of the commentators pick up on this. It's kind of cool. As soon as he says Adam is a type of Christ, he goes, oh, man, what have I said? How can I compare Adam with Christ? You know, so the next thing he does in the next three verses is instead of showing us how Adam and Christ are alike. He shows us how they're different. Okay, it's kind of like, oh my goodness, I just said Adam is a type of Christ, but Christ and Adam are alike, and eventually, eventually, we'll get to that in verse 18 and show where that similarity is. But before he does that, he stops and he takes three verses to explain to us how they are different. How is the transgression of Adam different from the gift that we have through from God through Christ? OK, so that's what he's doing. And the neat thing about it, of course, I'm talking in human terms. When I'm talking about Paul going, oh, my God, my goodness, what have I done? But but in reality, this is the Holy Spirit inspiring him. Right. And so the Holy Spirit leads Paul into writing to us and explaining to us this remarkable contrast between what Adam did and what Christ did. Now, keep that in mind. Because if you don't keep that in mind, that that's really where Paul is going with this, you'll, you may very well miss the point of what he's trying to say here in verse 15 particularly. Okay? So he says in, uh, in verse 15, now he picks up this theme. He's just said Adam is a type of Christ and then he goes into the contrast. But the free gift, he said, is not like the transgression. Okay? So on the one hand, he's going to compare the free gift with the transgression and this term, the free gift that he uses here, as you read down through the passage, he's, he's kind of including several different things in this free gift. He's including the idea just of the grace of God. He's including the whole idea of life in Christ. He's including the idea of the forgiveness of sin, justification. All those things get thrown into this into this thing that he's calling here, this free gift of God. OK, but we have to keep in mind that primarily what he's talking about is the free gift that we get from this one act of righteousness, which is clearly what? The crucifixion, Christ's atonement. Okay, So there's this one act of righteousness that he's comparing with the one act of transgression or sin. Adam's one act of sin introduced the death to the whole world. Now we have Christ's one act of righteousness and we're going to contrast those two things. And so he starts out and he says, the free gift is not like the transgression. Because if by the trans- just, uh, uh let me read it so I get it worded right. He says, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died. Okay, now we've got this hypothesis, hypothesis thing again, right? We've got an if. So this is, this is not the same if then that we were introduced to in verse 12. Okay, this is kind of a sub one, a subdivision. Okay, but he's presenting this kind of subjunctive and then conclusion. The, 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 the if, the, the conditional, and then the answer to the conditional, the answer to the if. So he says, he says, for if by the transgression of the one, who's he talking about? Adam, Adam Okay. If by the transgression of the one, the many died, who's he talking about? Us. All of us. Every descendant of Adam. Commentators are pretty unanimous on this one. The many here really means all. Okay? That's the idea. That when Adam sinned, He introduced into all of his descendants death. Sin and death. That was introduced to all of us. So he says, now, if by the transgression of the one, the many died, then what does he say? What's his next words? Much more. more. Now remember what's he trying to do? He's trying to show us the greatness of the death of Christ and now he's comparing it with Adam's transgression and what he wants us to understand is that Christ's death is far far greater than the transgression of Adam and to do this uh, he's going to actually uh, he's actually going to explain to us or show to us how the death of Christ is greater than the transgression of Adam in three specific areas in verse 15, 16, and 17. In verse 15, he's going to show us how the death of Christ is greater in its extent than the transgression of Adam. In verse 16, he will show us how the death of Christ is greater in its effect than the sin of Adam. And then in verse 17, he will show us how the death of Christ results in a greater destiny than the sin of Adam. Okay? And uh, we may only get through 15 today. Okay? Because there's a lot to look at in 15. Okay? So, he says, he says now, what he's trying to communicate to us here is how when Adam sinned, death was introduced to all men, to the many, right? Is that what he says? He says, for by the transgression of the one, the many died. Okay. Now what he wants to do is show us the exceeding greatness of the death of Christ over the sin of Adam. That's what he wants to show us. So he uses the phrase, much more. Much more than Adam's sin which introduced death to the many, he says that the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. Okay. Now, the key word here, the key word of contrast to show us the, great, the greatness of Christ's death compared to the sin of Adam is the word abound. Okay, what he wants us to show what he wants to show to us is that Adam's sin as as great as its effect was in introducing sin to every single one of his descendants. That's billions of people. The sin of Adam brought condemnation and death to billions and billions and billions of people without exception throughout the history of the world. Now, how are you going to beat that? How are you going to find something that's greater than what Adam did? But what Christ did, he said, the gift we have by the grace of God abounds. See, he didn't use that word in reference to Adam. Now when I look at what Adam did, well, that's pretty abundant, you know. Got everybody, got me, and I, here I am, you know, six, ten thousand years or more since Adam. Okay, so but got me, it got you. That's pretty great. How do you get greater than that? Well, because the gift of God through the the, the grace of God through the gift and grace of His Son abounded. Adam's sin did not abound. The gift through Christ abounds. What does He mean by that? What is, what is, what, when you have an abundance, what do you have? More. You have more what? More than, more than you need. It implies excess. Okay, In the Greek, that's just what the word means. It means to exceed, to go beyond, to be in excess, to be more than you need. Okay, So what he's telling us is that there's some sense in which the death of Christ is is more than we need. okay? And that's how it's different than Adam. Adam brought death to the many, but the death of Christ brings the grace of God and the gift of life abundantly, more than we need. To whom? To whom? Who does it say? The many. the many. Who are the many? Well, you know, if you're decent with your hermeneutics, that's what you assume. Okay? A hermeneutic principle that we tend to apply, we ought to apply, is when you find the same word used in very close proximity to itself, within Scripture or in any written, in any written literature for that matter, you would assume that the, that word means the same thing when it's used in very close proximity. You don't get much closer proximity than this. Okay, It means the same thing. Okay, That that would be your typical hermeneutic principle. Okay, Now, there are exceptions to that. I can think of one in Romans chapter 8, where in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul will speak of of his spirit speaking to our spirit, right? Okay, now there he uses the word pneuma or spirit in very close proximity, but they clearly mean something different, right? In the first case, it's a reference to the spirit of Christ. In the second case, it's a reference to our spirit. Okay, now how do I know in Romans chapter 8 that it's legitimate to see them as different? He qualifies it, okay? He makes it clear right within the immediate context, okay? So when you have two word, uh, uh, one word used in very close proximity within a text, it, you assume that it means the identical same thing unless he gives you some flag or some interpretive uh, guide to show you that it means something else within the context, okay? But in Romans chapter 5, in reference to the many, we don't have that. So we are compelled, I think, to assume that when Paul says that the gift of God and the grace by the gift of his son abounded to the many, it's the same many that he referred to just before that earlier in the verse. One reason to assume that is because that's the contrast he's trying to make, folks. He's trying to contrast the greatness of what Christ did with the greatness of what Adam did and show that the greatness of Christ is greater, right? Does that know what he's trying to do? Okay, now, here's where we get into the touchy area, okay? Because what we're touching on here is the question that is often referred to It's limited atonement. Okay. And limited atonement is one of the tenets of some Calvinists, many Calvinists, not all, uh, but it's a tenet within Calvinism that argues that when Christ died, he did not die for all men. He only died for those who were elect. If you don't, believe in Calvinistic predestination, then he only died for those who ultimately would be saved. Okay? And and that's a doctrine of limited atonement. Some Calvinists object to that term and, partic- and prefer the term particular atonement. Uh, so, whichever you prefer, uh, it's the idea that Christ did not die for all, but that he only died for those who ultimately would be saved or the elect. Okay? and uh, and one of the one of the strong arguments for particular atonement or limited atonement is the idea the idea and and, and I uh, I respect this is the idea that that to those who hold the limited atonement the idea that Christ could have died for some and then them not get saved Implies somehow some disparaging of the death of Christ that that Christ expended his life in vain or wastefully if you will and this is incomprehensible to us right the idea that that God could just waste his life like this on those who would not be saved okay Um, but let's think about this little illustration uh uh, say you're uh, say you're kind of strapped for cash. Okay, you're you're kind of just living hand to mouth, you're just getting along, and your car breaks down. Okay, some of us have been there, right? We can identify with this. A car breaks down, okay? So we take it to the mechanic, and the mechanic says it's gonna take a thousand bucks to fix your car. Okay. And so you're going, oh my goodness. I don't have any money. I'm flat broke, I gotta to get to work, my car's broke. And so as as a desperate last measure, you pray about it. <laughs> and you go, God, I need a thousand dollars to fix my car. You know, what am I going to do? You know, God, please send me a thousand dollars to fix my car. Well, meanwhile, your friend over here on the other side of town is having a quiet time. And the Holy Spirit just comes very gently and quietly in that person's quiet time and says, You know, why don't you go give so-and-so some money? Why don't you give them $1,500? And -and so-and-so, a very obedient uh, Christian, loving Christian, gets up from their quiet time. They write you a check for $1,500 and they bring it over your house and they knock on your door and they say you know I have no idea why God told me this but this morning God told me to bring you $1,500 and they hand you a check and you walk in your house and you look at that $1,500 and you look at the estimate from the mechanic that says $1,000 and your response is God sure is wasteful why is God so wasteful is that how you respond? You don't respond that way, do you? You go, this is incredible. God knew I only needed $1,000. And He gave me 1500 Glory to God. I would suggest to you that when God gives us more than I, than I need, it's not a sign that He is wasteful. It's a display of His glory. Now, how does all this relate? Well, Paul says, I don't see how you can get away from this, personally. I know, you know, I've read some of the things they say, but it doesn't make sense to me. Okay? Paul says that Christ's death abounded, i.e., was more than was necessary for the many. It was the same many who fell under the curse of sin. What that tells me is that the Christ, the death that Christ died... He died not only for all men, but it was more than we needed to save all men. So it's not just that Christ died for all, it's that it was more than was necessary for all men. Now how do we explain that? Well, we've got to think about the nature of God here for a minute. God is God is infinite. Right? God is infinite and He is eternal. And when when we say God is eternal, we mean He's eternal in a different sense than we speak of us being eternal, right? Okay, we're eternal in the fact that we had a we had a beginning point in time, and then we will live forever. Okay, but God didn't have a beginning, right? God lives, if we can use this expression, God lives outside of time. You know, he doesn't live in time; He's outside of time. So Jesus says, "Before Abraham was, I." M. Okay, it's just all present tense to him. Now, when we think about the nature of God, that God is eternal and that he is infinite. And then we contemplate as Jesus hung on the cross, what did he utter to his father? What did he say to his father? Well, other than that? About their relationship. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we think about that and we go, okay. there was a point in time in which the father and the son had a whiff, a rift or wound in their relationship. And it was because of our sin. But there's one mistake in the way I worded that. It wasn't a point in time. It was a point in God. And what I am suggesting to you is that the wound God suffered when he and the sun were, for a moment, to us, a moment in time, forsaken each other, was in fact an infinite and eternal wound. What I understand that means, to put it in human terms, this gets—you know—it's it's hard to grasp all this. But what I understand that means is that when I've been there ten thousand years, bright, shining as the sun. Still, Christ will be bearing the wound of my transgression. Now, everything else in his experience is going on too, okay? You know, all the love and you know, all the goodness and the relationship. But somehow, I don't understand all this, but somehow the wound of Christ at the cross was infinite and eternal. That far, far exceeds the transgression of Adam. And so I can understand then how the death Christ died was far more than you needed or I needed. It was abundantly more than we needed. It was abundantly more than I needed or you needed or all of us in this room together needed. In fact, it was abundantly more than all of mankind needed. And that was in fact what God intended. He intended to make a payment for sin that would be far greater than was needed to redeem every lost soul, whether they would respond to Him or not. This is the greatness of the cross, folks. Because there are times in our lives when we've really blown it and we begin to doubt a little bit whether or not we're still under the grace of God. Right? You ever had those times? You go, okay, now I've really pushed the limit here. There's no such thing. The death Christ died is so much greater than the transgression of Adam and the consequences of the transgression of Adam. The death Christ died is so much greater than that that it super abundantly exceeds and is beyond all of my sin and all of your sin and all of our sin. And if, in fact, I try to read this verse and suggest that what Paul is saying here is that the many here, and this is typically what those who believe in limited atonement do with this verse is they make those two many's different. The first many is all. The second many is only the elect or those who will be saved. Okay? But if I do that, I have just eviscerated Paul's argument. Right? How do I know that? Well, what did Jesus tell us about how many would be saved? Broad is the way that leads to destruction and what? Many there be that find it. But narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And what? Few there be that find it. So if Paul's going to be consistent with Jesus and if Christ really only died for those who would be saved, the proper way to read this verse would be that by the transgression of the one, the many died, and even less, did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God Bound to the few. Now, remember, when we're talking about the few here, we're not talking about 90% of mankind, 80% of mankind, 50% of mankind, 10% of mankind, right? We're talking about a minuscule fraction of mankind that will actually be saved. I typically think of it as a similar ratio of the lot being taken out of. Yeah, that's a good example. And I was just thinking of that myself as he as mm-hmm. Abraham's interceding for Sodom the morning gets it down to ten and that's not enough. Or you say her? Or? Or, or Noah, yeah, yeah. And 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 so my point is my point is that that if in fact Paul really means to say just the that the grace of God only abounds to the elect It's not many at all. It's not even really few. It's just a tiny fraction. And that completely eviscerates his argument. His argument is that the death of Christ is so much greater than Adam. And if it's so much greater, it's greater in three respects that he lists for us. We've only gotten to verse 15, which is greater in its extent. It's greater in that it extends to, it is offered, it is makes a provision of the forgiveness of sins and the grace of God and eternal life. It makes the provision for all the many, everybody who falls under the curse of Adam's transgression. And that's me. And that's you. And that's everybody you share the gospel with. You don't ever have to hesitate to walk up to somebody and share the gospel with them and tell them, Christ died for you. Because he did. And that's one of the things that makes his death greater than the death of Adam. I knew we'd only get through verse 15. Okay, next week we'll pick it up in uh, verse 16.